welcome back to another lecture on decision making in public service. And in this lecture, we're going to work through part four of Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Part four, as we move on from overconfidence, is about choices. And this is getting into the heart of how people make decisions when given multiple choices to choose from. And this is where a bulk of Kahneman's own research work in terms of prospect theory in particular um, had maybe the largest impact on economics and the field and starting the field of behavioral economics. And one of the core pieces of this um, Kahneman captures in the first chapter of Bernoulli's Errors. And throughout this chapter, he highlights the ways that psychologists and economists look at humans differently. And when talking about economics, he says the field had a theory, expected utility theory, which was the foundation of the rational agent model and is to this day the most important theory in the social sciences. Expected utility theory was not intended as a psychological model. It was a logic of choice based on elementary rules, axioms, of rationality. Consider this example. If you prefer an apple to a banana, then you also prefer a 10% chance to win an apple to a 10% chance to win a banana. The apple and the banana stand for any objects of choice, including gambles, and the 10% chance stands for any probability. All right, and then a lot of this is going to be built on um, gambles that highlight the trade-offs between two decisions and the potential gain and the potential loss, which we're going to get to, and the probabilities associated with those. The mathematician John von Neumann, one of the giant intellectual figures of the 20th century, and the economist Oscar Morgenstern had derived the theory, their theory of rational choice between gambles from a few axioms. Economists adopted expected utility theory in a dual role as a logic that prescribes how decisions should be made and a description of how econs make choices. Kahneman says, Amos and I were psychologists, however, and we set out to understand how humans actually make risky choices, those with probabilities, without assuming anything about their rationality. Um, they end up with... After several years of studying gambles, they completed an essay that they titled Prospect Theory and Analysis of Decision Under Risk. Kahneman says, our theory was closely modeled on utility theory, but departed from it in fundamental ways. Most important, our model was purely descriptive and its goal was to document and explain systematic violations of the axioms of rationality and choices between gambles. And he mentions prospect theory turned out to be the most significant work that he and Amos ever did. And they uh, published it in Econometrica, which was is a, a big economic journal, which helped spread the influence to economics. 
And two years later, they published in Science an account of framing effects, the large changes of preferences that are sometimes caused by inconsequential variations in the wording of a choice problem. Econometrica and Science being two very top-tier uh, academic journals. He says, uh, our approach to the problem was in the spirit of a field of psychology called psychophysics which was founded and named by the German psychologist and mystic Gustav Fechner. Fechner was obsessed with the relation of mind and matter. On one side, there is a physical quantity that can vary, such as the energy of a light, the frequency of a tone, or an amount of money. On the other side, there is a subjective experience of brightness, pitch, or value. Mysteriously, variations of the physical quantity cause variations in the intensity or quality of this subjective experience. Fetchner's project was to find the psychophysical laws that relate the subjective quantity in the observer's mind to the objective quantity in the material world. He proposed that for many dimensions, the function is logarithmic, which simply means that an increase of stimulus Intensity by a given factor, say times 1.5 or times 10, always yields the same increment on the, psycho psychological, on the psychological scale. If raising the energy of the sound from 10 to 100 units of physical energy increases the psychological intensity by 4 units, then a further increase of stimulus intensity from 100 to 1,000 will also increase psychological intensity by four units. So essentially, as increases in some stimuli um, increase on a logarithmic scale, a 10 to the power scale, their psychological responses um, stay on the same uh, on the same scale so from 10 to 100 units of an increase in light intensity uh, is related to a psychological intensity of four units but going from 100 to a thousand another power also goes up by four units so they're not linear related it's not that as a as some physical energy increased by one unit that the psychological intensity also increases by a unit. This is going to be important here a little bit later in this lecture of thinking about the endowment effect and how much money or endowment someone has changes how they view different uh, outcomes and it'll be framed in terms of losses and gains which we'll see here in a moment. So as Fetchner well knew, as Kahneman says, he was not the first to look for a function that relates psychological intensity to the physical magnitude of the stimulus. In 1738, the Swiss scientist Daniel Bernoulli anticipated Fetchner's reasoning and applied it to the relationship between the psychological value or desirability of money, now called utility, and the actual amount of money. Bernoulli observed that most people um, dislike risk. 
the chance of receiving the lowest possible outcome, and if they are offered a choice between a gamble and an, e an amount equal to its expected value, they will pick the sure thing. In fact, a risk-averse decision maker will choose a sure thing that is a less than expected value, in effect, paying a premium to avoid the uncertainty. 100 years before, Fechner, Bernoulli invented psycho psychophysics to explain this aversion to risk. His idea was straightforward. People's choices are based not on dollar values, but on the psychological values of outcomes, their utilities. The psychological value of a gamble is therefore not the weighted average of its possible dollar outcomes. It is the average of the utilities of these outcomes, each weighted in some way by its probability. So, uh, Kahneman walks through several several examples of uh, Bernoulli playing out. For example, um, he says Bernoulli's essay is a marvel of concise brilliance. He applied his new concept of expected utility, which he called moral expectation, to compute how much a merchant in St. Petersburg would be willing to pay to ensure a shipment of spice from Amsterdam if he is well aware of the fact that at this time of year 100 ships of uh, at this time of year of 100 ships which sail from Amsterdam to Petersburg five are usually lost his utility function explained why poor people buy insurance and why richer people sell it to them Bernoulli also offered a solution to the famous St. Petersburg paradox in which people who are offered a gamble that has infinite expected value, are willing to spend only a few ducats for it. Most impressive, his analysis of risk attitudes in terms of preferences for wealth have stood the test of time. It is still current in economic analysis almost 300 years later. The longevity of the theory, as Common says, is all the more remarkable because it is seriously flawed. The errors of a theory are rarely found in what it asserts explicitly. They, hold, they hide in what it ignores or tacitly assumes. Bernoulli's theory assumes that the utility of their wealth, of people's wealth, is what makes people more or less happy. Um, but as Kahneman's example showed, the happiness that, say, Jack and Jill, who he used for experiments, is determined by the recent change in their wealth relative to the different states of wealth that define their reference points. This reference dependence is ubiquitous in sensation and perception. So rather being about overall expected utility, it has to do with changes from one reference point, from what you currently do or do not have, to a new state in which you have more or less. Kahneman says, because Bernoulli's model lacks the idea of a reference point, expected utility theory does not represent the obvious fact that changes from some reference point are really what drive people's level of uh, utility or happiness or frustration. And one of the things that this causes 
the Bernoulli model to miss is that in some times, in some cases, people are not uh, risk averse. They actually seek risks to avoid a certain outcome or to dramatically improve their outcome. Hence why people play the lottery, for example. All right. Kahneman ends this chapter with, the mystery is how a conception of the utility of outcomes that is vulnerable to such obvious counterexamples, the Bernoulli one, survived for so long. I can explain it only by a weakness of the scholarly mind that I've often observed in myself. I call it theory-induced blindness. Once you've accepted a theory and used it as a tool in your thinking, it's extraordinarily difficult to notice its flaws. Fits in with some of the other biases we've seen. This applies to academics, and while they are unwilling to abandon or change their theories sometimes. So Kahneman lays out his prospect theory, and um, he prospect theory essentially highlights how we start from a reference point in our decision-making, and then when choices or prospects are presented to us, we evaluate those with subjective probability weights that feel right to us, and we evaluate those choices in terms of uh, gains or losses. So um, Kahneman highlighting a reference point um, in prospect theory uh, mentions that this can also be seen as operating characteristics of system one. And here's a couple examples. Evaluation is relative to a neutral reference point, which is sometimes referred to as an adaptation level. You can easily set up a compelling demonstration of this principle. Place three bowls of water in front of you. Put ice water into the left-hand bowl and warm water into the right-hand bowl. The water in the middle bowl should be at room temperature. Immerse your hands in the cold and warm water for about a minute. Then dip both hands in the middle bowl. You will experience the same temperature as heat in one hand and cold in the other. For financial outcomes, the usual reference point is the status quo but it can also be the outcome that you expect or perhaps the outcome to which you feel entitled, for example, the raise or bonus that your colleagues receive. Outcomes that are better than the reference points are seen as gains. Below the reference point, they are losses. The principle of diminishing sensitivity applies to both sensory dimensions and the evaluation of changes of wealth. Turning on a weak light has a large effect in a dark room. The same increment of light might may be undetectable in a brightly illuminated room. Similarly, the subjective difference between $900 and $1,000 is much smaller than the difference between $100 and $200. Third principle is loss aversion. When directly compared or weighted against each other, losses loom larger than gains. This asymmetry between the power of positive and negative expectations or experiences has an evolutionary history. 
Organisms that treat threats as more urgent than opportunities have a better chance to sur survive and reproduce. So there's some good evolutionary reasons as to why our brains do not fit in with Bernoulli's expected utility theory and rather why we evaluate things as losses and gains compared to some reference point and some expectation. One of the big notes from this literature is that we uh, we are loss averse rather than risk averse um, so we try to avoid losses um, Kahneman also uh, highlights some to uh, some of the blind spots of prospect theory um, and one of these that he highlights, just to pick one from the section here, is that both prospect theory and utility theory also have failed to allow for regret. The two theories share the assumption that available options and choice are evaluated separately and independently, and that the option with the highest value is selected. This assumption is certainly wrong, um, as some additional examples highlight. Uh, speaking of prospect theory, some of the water cooler quotes that Kahneman uses at the end of the chapter are, he suffers from extreme loss aversion, which makes him turn down the very favorable opportunities. Considering her vast wealth, her emotional response to trivial gains and losses makes no sense. He weighs losses about twice as much as gains, which is normal. It's one of the findings from prospect theory that gains and loss aversion and empirical studies of these phenomena show that losses are weighted about twice as highly as gains. Next chapter talks about the endowment effect. And um, Kahneman gives an example here. To appreciate the power that the reference point exerts on choices, consider Albert and Ben, hedonic twins who have identical tastes and currently hold identical starting jobs with little income and little leisure time. Their current circumstances correspond to uh, a point marked in a previous figure. The firm offers them two improved positions and lets them decide who will get a raise of $10,000 and who will get an extra day of paid vacation each month. As they are both indifferent, they toss a coin. Albert gets the raise, Ben gets the extra leisure time. Some time passes as the twins get accustomed to their positions. Now the company suggests they may switch jobs if they wish. The standard theory represented in the previous figure assumes that preferences are stable over time. Each of the positions are equally attractive for both twins and they will need little or no incentive to switch. In sharp contrast, prospect theory asserts that both twins will definitely prefer to remain as they are. This preference for the status quo is a consequence of loss aversion. This example highlights two aspects of choice that the standard model of indifference curves does not predict. First, tastes are not fixed. They vary with the reference point. Second, the disadvantages of a change loom larger than its advantages, inducing a bias that favors the status quo.
kind of give some illustrative examples. Um, and he highlights uh, an industry where this is pretty uh, uh, prevalent. And he says, the fundamental ideas of prospect theory are that reference points exist and that losses loom larger than corresponding gain, gains. Observations in real markets collected over the years illustrate the power of these concepts. A study of the market for condo apartments in Boston during a downturn yielded particularly clear results. The authors of that study compared the behavior of owners of similar units who had bought their dwellings at different prices. For a rational agent, the buying history is irrelevant history. The current market value is all that matters. Not so for humans in a down market for housing. Owners who have a high reference point and thus face higher losses set a higher price on their dwelling spending a longer time trying to sell their home and eventually receive more money. Recent studies of the psychology of decision-making under poverty, as one more example, suggest that, poor, that the poor are another group in which we do not expect to find the endowment effect. Being poor in prospect theory is living below one's reference point. There are goods that the poor need and cannot afford, so they are always in the losses. Small amounts of money that they receive are therefore perceived as a reduced loss, not as a gain. The money helps one climb a little toward the reference point, but the poor always remain on the steep climb, on the steep limb, of the value function. People who are poor think like traders, but the dynamics are quite different. Unlike traders, the poor are not indifferent to the differences between gaining and giving up. The problem is that all their choices are between losses. Money that is spent on one good is the loss of another good that could have been purchased instead. For the poor, costs are losses. Kahneman finishes this chapter by saying, we all know people for whom spending is painful, although they are objectively quite well off. There may also be cultural differences in the attitude toward money, and especially toward the spending of money on whims and minor luxuries, such as the purchasing of a decorated mug. Such a difference may explain the large discrepancy between the results of the mug study in the United States and in the UK. Buying and selling prices diverge substantially in experiments conducted in samples of students of the United States but the differences are much smaller among English students. Much, as Kahneman says, remains to be learned about the endowment effect. A couple of water cooler, uh, water cooler quotes from Kahneman. She didn't care which of the two offices she would get, but a day after the announcement was made, she was no longer willing to trade. Endowment effect. These negotiations are going nowhere because both sides find it difficult to make concessions. Even when they can get something in return, losses loom larger than gains. Next chapter is about bad events and how the brain is uh, very attuned to identifying uh, threats. Um, for example, Kahneman says the brain responds quickly even to purely symbolic threats, emotionally loaded words, quickly attract attention, and bad words, war and crime, attract attention faster than do happy words, peace and love. 
There's no real threat, but the mere reminder of a bad event is treated in System 1 as threatening. The psychologist Paul Rosen, an expert on disgust, observed that a single cockroach will completely wreck the appeal of a bowl of cherries, but a cherry will do nothing at all for a bowl of cockroaches. <laughs> As he points out, the negative trumps the positive in many ways, and loss aversion is one of many manifestations of a broad negativity dominance. The biologi biologist Michael Kabanok would call the experience of, the moment, of that moment intensely pleasurable because it functions as pleasure normally does to indicate the direction of a biologically significant improvement of circumstances. The pleasant relief will not last very long, of course, and you will soon be shivering behind the rock again, driven by your renewed suffering to seek better shelter. That's from a little bit longer narrative there in that chapter. Conway goes on to say, loss aversion refers to the relative strength of two, mo two motives. We are driven more strongly to avoid losses than to achieve gains. A reference point is sometimes a status quo, but it can also be a goal in the future. Not, achieve not achieving a goal is a loss, exceeding the goal as a gain. As we might expect from negativity dominance, the two motives are not equally powerful. The aversion to the failure of not reaching the goal is much stronger than the desire to exceed it. Kahneman goes on to say, uh, if you are set to look for it, the asymmetric intensity of the motives to avoid losses and to achieve gains shows up almost everywhere. It is an ever-present feature of negotiations, especially of renegotiations of an existing contract typical situation in labor negotiations and in international discussions of trade or arms situations. The existing terms define reference points and the proposed change in any aspect of the agreement is inevitably viewed as a concession that one side makes to the other. Loss aversion creates an asymmetry that makes agreements difficult to reach. The concessions, concessions you make to me are my gains, but they are your losses. They cause you much more pain than they give me pleasure. Inevitably, you will place a higher value on them than I do. The same is true, of course, of the very painful concessions you demand for me, which you do not appear to value sufficiently. Negotiations over a shrinking pie are especially difficult because they require an allocation of losses. People tend to be much more easygoing when they bargain over an expanding pie. Loss aversion, as Kahneman says, is a powerful conservative force that favors minimal changes from the status quo in the lives of both institutions and individuals. This conservatism, or defending the status quo, helps keep us stable in our neighborhood, our marriage, and our job. It is the gravitational force that holds our life together near the reference point. Kahneman highlights that loss aversion uh, is encoded in the law and the way we Think about what's fair and unfair behavior. For example, he says different rules governed what the firm could do to improve its profits or to avoid reduced profits. When a firm placed, faced lower production costs, the rules of fairness did not require it to share the bonanza with either its customers or its workforce workers. 
Of course, he says of this experiment, our respondents liked a firm better and described it as more fair if it were as more generous when its profit shared. But they did not brand as unfair a firm that did not share. They showed indignation only when a firm exploited its power to break informal contracts with workers or customers and to impose a loss on others in order to increase its profit. The important task for students of economic fairness is not to identify ideal behavior, but to find the line that separates acceptable conduct from actions that invite opprobrium and punishment. Kahneman gives some speaking of losses. Uh, water cooler talk. This reform will not pass. Those who stand to lose will fight harder than those who stand to gain. Each of them thinks the other's concessions are less painful. They are both wrong, of course. It's just the asymmetry of losses. They would find it easier to negotiate the agreement if they realized the pie was actually expanding. They're not allocating losses. They're allocating gains. This brings us to the fourfold pattern that Kahneman highlights and how we use decision weights to estimate the probability of something um, rather than the actual probabilities. And he captures the things from loss aversion and probabilities and reference points in the fourfold pattern. The fourfold pattern he describes uh, this way in the fourfold pattern section. He says, when Amos and I began our work on prospect theory, we quickly reached, reached two conclusions. People attach values to gains and losses rather than to wealth, and the decision weights that they assign to outcomes are different from probabilities. He says, neither idea was completely new, but in combination, they explained a distinctive pattern, the fourfold pattern, of preferences that we called the fourfold pattern. He illustrates it in a figure in the book, figure 13. He says, the fourfold pattern of preferences is considered one of the core achievements of prospect theory. Three of the four cells are familiar. The fourth top right one was new and expected, unexpected. And this is when people are engaging in some risk-seeking risk risk behaviors in the hope to avoid a loss. And he summarizes um, the, uh, a situation where there's a high probability that there's a gain from your current position, and that's called the certainty effect, and you're risk-averse, you have fear of disappointment, and you may accept an unfavorable sentiment. There's a situation where there's a high probability of a loss, and this is when people hope to avoid a loss, and they are risk-seeking. They may reject a favorable settlement. And then we have situations with low probability, where there's a low probability of a gain. This is where people hope to get a large gain, and they are risk-seeking, and they may reject a favorable settlement. And then there's a low probability of a loss from the current uh, status quo, which this induces a fear of a large loss, um, and people are risk-averse, and they may accept an unfavorable set settlement when there's a low probability of a large loss. And this highlights a number of things. One is diminishing sensitivity. Um, and um, Kahneman walks through some ways in which 
uh, this sort of explains why uh, how people end up in um, gambling addictions or rejecting favor uh, rejecting negotiations that might actually be better for them. A few examples um, that Kahneman provides of water cooler talk. Speaking of the fourfold pattern, quote, he is tempted to settle this frivolous claim to avoid a freak loss, however unlikely. That's overweighting of small probabilities. Since he is likely to face many similar problems, he would be better off not yielding. The next one, we never let our vacations hang on a last minute deal. We're willing to pay a lot for certainty. Another one, they will not cut their losses so long as there's a chance of breaking even. This is risk-seeking and the losses. I have observed this own effect in my own behavior when playing blackjack at a casino. If you start out with losses, you are doing you become risk-seeking to minimize those losses or to break even. Okay, there's a lot more on the fourfold pattern. Um, I encourage you to spend some additional chapter time with chapter 29. Uh, chapter 30 is about rare events and um, Kahneman says he talks about how rare events kind of can loom large in our mind. Uh, we have availability bias towards them and that our emotions and the vividness of events cause us to overweight them. And uh, Kahneman says the original formulation of prospect theory included the argument that highly unlikely events are either ignored or overweighted, but it did not specify the conditions under which one or the other will occur, nor did it propose a psychological interpretation of it. My current view of decision weights has been strongly influenced by recent research on the role of emotions and vividness in decision making. Overweighting of unlikely outcomes is rooted in system one features that are familiar by now. Emotion and vividness influence fluency, availability, and judgments of probability. Let me say that again. Emotion and vividness influence the fluency, availability, and judgments of probability, and thus account for our excessive response to the few rare events that we do not ignore. How do people make the judgments and how do they assign decision weights? We start from two simple answers, then qualify them. Here are the oversimplified answers. People overestimate the probability of unlikely events and people overweight unlikely events in their decisions. Although overestimation and overweighting are distinct phenomena, the same psychological mechanisms are involved in both. Focused attention, confirmation bias, and cognitive bias. Kahneman mentioned some other highlights um, here that uh, some, of the some of the findings shed new light on the planning fallacy and other manifestations of optimism. The successful execution of a plan is specific and easy to imagine when one tries to forecast the outcome of a project. In contrast, the alternative of failure is diffuse because there are innumerable ways for things to go wrong. Entrepreneurs and the investors who evaluate their prospects are prone both to overestimate their chances and to overweight their estimates. As we have seen, prospect theory differs from utility theory and the relationship it suggests between probability and decision weight. And a lot of this is influenced, as Kahneman 
highlights throughout the ch chapter of the vividness of the probabilities. This is coming back again to base rate neglect and um, and the example he brings in this chapter is denominator neglect. And he calls it uh, denominator neglect is if your attention is drawn to say the winning marbles, you do not assess the number of non-winning marbles with the same care. Vivid imagery contributes to denominator neglect. The distinctive vividness of the winning marbles increases the decision weight of that event, enhancing the possibility effect. Kahneman goes on to say, uh, talking about decisions from global impressions, the evidence suggests that hypotheses that, fo that focal attention and salience contribute to both the overestimation of unlikely events and the overweighting of unlikely outcomes. Salience is enhanced by mere mention of an event by its vividness and by the format in which probability is described. The bias toward overestimation and overweighting of salient events is not an absolute rule, but it is large and robust. As you might remember from the associative machine and um, from uh, what you see is all there is and the way in which emotions uh, and availability bias influence what comes to our mind from systems one. Kahneman goes on to say the interpretation of choice from experience is not yet settled, but there is a general agreement on one major cause of underweighting of rare events, both in experiments and in the real world. Many ex participants never experience the rare event. Kahneman goes on to close the chapter with the probability of a rare event will often not always be overestimated because of the confirmatory bias of memory. Thinking about that event, you try to make it true in your mind. A rare event will be overweighted if it specifically attracts attention, which we have talked about um, in the earlier chapters of how to um, uh, of how the of how system one works. Okay, um, there's a couple more chapters here. There is a chapter on risk policies. Um, and uh, thinking about narrow framing versus broad framing. Um, and trying to engage in a risk policy that takes the outside view. And that that should be a policy goal. Um, and then Kahneman talks about keeping score and mental accounts. Um, which is a big part of choices as well. And then we'll talk about reversals and frames and reality. Um, so there's a lot more here, but um, I'm gonna leave those final chapters to you in terms of keeping with time as we're getting to the 40 minute mark. Um, and just know that uh, keeping score um, has to do with uh, a lot of uh, mental accounts and sunk costs, and that um, you over you you keep up with how much you've spent in something, even when it's a sunk cost, and that should not affect your decision. Um, for example, the sunk cost fallacy keeps people for too long in poor jobs, unhappy marriages, and unpromising research projects because regret looms large. Um, 
and um, so do concerns about losses. And so in, avoid, in, a, in an attempt to avoid losses, we stick with our sunk costs uh, in the hope that it'll eventually reach the goal we were shooting for. Okay, I think that's all I'm gonna cover for part three. Um, the information in reversals, the reversals chapter um, is, is worth paying some attention to, as is frames and reality, um, and the continued role that framing plays in uh, organizing how we think about things. Um, and that these frames are, as we've highlighted in earlier uh, sections, are very uh, powerful. Um, but I think that's enough for uh, chapter, excuse me, for part four. We'll move on to part five for the next chapter, uh, for the next lecture. That'll be the last lecture on Kahneman, and we'll cover two selves. Thanks for following along, and I uh, hope this uh, gives you a nice overview of how Kahneman and psychologists and the field of behavioral economics and some of the impacts on actual economics and policy, how the as we pull together the information from overconfidence and all of the biases and heuristics from earlier uh, parts that you can kind of pull this evidence together in a systematic way and see how people start from a reference point evaluate their choices in terms of gains and losses and that they overweight losses and that uh, they use decision weights instead of actual probability weights and these distort decision making in some significant ways that Kahneman highlights throughout the book and throughout part four. Thanks for following along.